Well, good morning, Hallows Church. My name is Jeff and Jeff Hundley, and I serve as one of the pastors here with our church. It's a privilege to do so. It's also a privilege this morning to lead us through our study in the book of Judges as we continue uh, this journey together. We're going to be exploring Judges chapter 16 today, so if you have a Bible with you or your Bible app, head over in that direction if you would, and you can track along with me as I go. Uh, The Death of Samson is the title, Judges chapter 16. Now, I I read something this past week about a, a gym, a fitness gym that was, uh, this fitness gym was launching a new ad campaign and they were sending out mailers to their local uh, neighbors, to their local area. And on, and on one side of the uh, mailer in very big letters, it said, it said, prepare to celebrate the year of you. And if you flip that mailer over on the other side, here's what it said. It said, the new year is right around the corner and you're either going to own the new year or the new year is going to own you. It's 100% your choice, it's in your hands. It's up to you to take action, it said. It's up to you to be consistent, to be prolific, to be invincible. It's up to you and nobody else to take charge. It says no more pity parties, no more whining, no more obstacles stand in your way. You are in control, you. And what we saw last week and what we'll continue to see some this week too is that this man named Samson in the book of Judges, he he seemed to have taken a similar sort of strategy in his own life, really thinking that no one could stop him, thinking that uh, there were no obstacles that were too great for him, thinking that he was in every way in control of his life and the direction of it. And we're going to see that continue today at some level, but we're going to see that end today too. In fact, we're going to see today the end of Samson, the death of Samson, on a number of different levels. The Bible, in fact, is quite clear in saying to each one of us that if you think you're in control of your life, you're uh, you're kidding yourself, and it's only a matter of time before you realize it. Samson, he's going to realize it in today's narrative, but what we're gonna see is that it takes him really his his entire life to get there. Samson was a man who was chosen by God and called by God and and set apart by God from even before his birth to be used by God for some very special things. But as we talked about last week, though Samson was a very gifted man, he was not a very godly man. His calling and his character did not always line up so well with one another. There was a disconnect, you see, between Samson's calling by God as a Nazarite and Samson's character as a man, as a fallen man living in a fallen world. Samson, in many ways, you see, was an impulsive man. He was a manipulative man. He was a, he was a volatile and a vengeful man, too, and rarely did he seem to take his calling by God uh, very seriously at all. And last week, because of these very things, we saw that Samson's own wedding, wedding day went uh, very sideways, very quickly, in a very devastating way. Interestingly, the final verse of last week's passage, chapter 15, verse 20, told us that Samson judged Israel for uh, 20 years. He said he judged Israel for 20 years, and that's the language that's used in most of the other narratives of these judges we've been exploring in this book up, up to this point. That's how the narrative of each judge ends, by that sort of language, saying this judge or that judge judged Israel for a certain period of time. They all have that same sort of language. So as you reach the end of uh, chapter 15 and you hear that, uh, the author saying that Samson judged Israel for 20 years last week, you might think at first glance that the, that the story of Samson in chapter 15 was about to end. 
But that's not the case this time. There's one more chapter in Samson's story and it's got a lot going on. It packs a pretty powerful punch as you'll see. This final chapter of Samson's life is going to show us some fascinating things, I think, about, uh, about Samson's ongoing struggle with his own sin, about the consequences of that sin, and about God's grace extended to him in spite of it all. And what I hope to show you in this chapter is how God would allow Samson to kind of reach the end of himself. He's gonna allow Samson to reach the end of himself by allowing Samson's own sin and Samson's uh, own self-sufficiency to kind of run its course in his life and, and in a sense to, to take him down. Sin does that, doesn't it, if you're not careful? And God at times allows that to happen, I think, as a peculiar form of his grace, giving people over to what they want, letting, the, letting it get the better of them so they might finally begin to see things differently and to see him differently. And what you eventually see with Samson is him hitting bottom and only there finally having his eyes open to his true condition and to his, his true dependence on God. And as a result, Samson is able to turn a very important corner in his life in this chapter where he goes from being a man who very much served himself to a man who was going to surrender himself and so let's see what goes down in Judges chapter 16. Head over there if you're not already there. Now it's believed that everything that we talked about last week in chapters 14 and 15 about this man named Samson occurred very early on during his uh, 20 year tenure as a judge and that this chapter that we're stepping into today, chapter 16, happened toward the end of that tenure as a judge. In fact, some suggest that what we see here as we step into chapter 16 is a glimpse of what Samson's judgeship might have looked like and what it might have become over those 20 years. And if that's the case, one thing we're gonna see is that Samson does not seem to be a man who was make, making much progress in godly character and in godly conduct. His calling by God and his vow to God did not seem to be at the forefront at all in his life. No, at this point, what we see in Samson really is a, a self-indulgent man in every way, a self-serving man Listen to verses one to three. It says, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute and went to bed with her. When the Gazites heard that Samson was there, they surrounded the place and waited in ambush for him all the night at the city gate. They kept quiet all night saying, let's wait until dawn, then we will kill him. But Samson stayed in bed only until midnight. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the city gate along with the two gateposts, and pulled them out, bar and all. He put them on his shoulders and took them to the top of the mountain overlooking Hebron. Now the Bible is uh, a very honest book. It's the most honest and accurate book, I would say, ever written about the human heart and about the human uh, condition, and we really see that here. Samson, he was an extremely powerful man, right? God had gifted him with a supernatural strength. That much is clear. We saw that uh, quite clearly last week. We saw him tear a lion apart with his own bare hands in chapter 15, verse five. We saw him kill a thousand Philistines single-handedly with the, the jawbone of a donkey. And here we see him taking hold of the city gates of Gaza, these would have been massive structures and he pulls them out of the ground, bars and all, and walks off with them. 
But for all his incredible strength and power, Samson, he was also a, a remarkably weak man too, particularly when it came to women and beauty and sex. Gaza, you see, was a major city in the Philistine nation, nearly 40 miles away from Samson's home. And he would have had to travel through enemy territory most of the way in order to get there to Gaza. And this says something important, I think, about uh, Samson's intent. Him being in Gaza, you see, was no slip up. He didn't take a wrong turn. He was not lapsing unexpectedly into sin. No, what we have here seems to be uh, Samson quite willfully putting himself again and again in very dangerous situations. Here we have Samson doing what was right in his own eyes, quite literally whoring with the enemy, just as the nation of Israel had done uh, up to this point again and again. In fact, what we see in Samson is a rather tragic uh, mirror image, really, of what we've seen with the nation of Israel throughout this uh, book of Judges, the, the people turning their backs on God and committing spiritual adultery against him again and again. And this whole incident with stealing the city gates of Gaza, this may sound odd, but you need to, you need to understand that the city gate in Gaza and in every other uh, city of that day was what protected the city. It's what protected the people of the city. The city gate, you see, was a symbol of protection and power and strength. And to possess the gate of an enemy was a metaphor, really, which essentially meant to, to have control over your enemy or to uh, defeat your enemy. When Jesus spoke about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church in Matthew chapter 16, he was picturing the victory of the church over the forces of Satan and evil and through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus, in a sense, stormed the gates of hell and carried them off in victory. And so this is a symbolic act by Samson in, a, in a, an important way and a pretty aggressive and arrogant one too. Samson rips the gate out. He rips it off as a, as a trophy of sorts. He's, he's messing with the Philistines. He's taunting them. And apparently they had no defense against him. They were unable to do anything about this, it seems. And Samson, he probably enjoyed this very much. If you're an uh, Israelite hearing this story back then, you're laughing about this too, high-fiving one another, that Samson strolls in and steals their city gate all by himself, and they can do nothing about it. In fact, this seems to be a picture of his administration, really, as a judge in some ways. Samson, you see, he never rallied a single army or fought a single battle with, with the help of anyone but himself. But you have this single man, this single sinful man by the power of God, kind of holding the Philistines at bay during this period of time, instilling fear into them, taunting them with his strength, and as a result, at some level, protecting God's people all by himself. This is Samson, tremendously strong on the one hand and remarkably and tragically weak on another. He could kill a lion with his bare hands, but he couldn't kill the lust within his heart. He could carry away the gates of Gaza, but he couldn't stop himself from being carried away at times by, by his sinful desires. And as the narrative continues, we're going to see the cycle of sin in Samson's life continue and, and really deepen. And as it does, we see that he was not only 
uh, a self-indulgent man, but he was also a self-deceiving man. He was a self-deceived man in every way. Picking up the story in verse four, it says, sometime later, he fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the Sorek Valley. The Philistine leaders went to her and said, persuade him to tell you where his great strength comes from so that we can overpower him, tie him up, and make him helpless. Each of us will then give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And so Samson, he can't seem to help himself, can he, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to women, when it comes to forbidden women in particular? You see, God had warned his people about intermingling and about intermarrying uh, with the pagan cultures around them. And the Valley of Sorek was on the border between Judah and Philistia, and this is where we find Samson, again, lingering at the enemy's border, falling for this woman named Delilah, who as best we can tell was, was herself, yet another Philistine woman in Samson's life. This pattern of sin and recklessness in Samson's life continues uh, to deepen, and as it does, the plot of this story, it thickens rather quickly. Samson, you see, was quite clearly, uh, at this point, a wanted man. He had become a national menace to the Philistines for doing things like carrying off their gate. He was public enemy number one. And as word gets out about Samson and Delilah down in the valley of Sorak, the top leaders of the Philistine nation pay a visit to Delilah and they offer her, they offer her a massive reward in what would, have, in what would uh, by today's standards, be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars if she would only help, help them take Samson down. And so Delilah has fame and fortune in every way being kind of held out in front of her and dangled in front of her like a carrot. She could be a national hero and a very wealthy one at that, completely uh, set for the rest of her life if she was only willing to, to cooperate with them. And so what does she do? What does Delilah do? We see in verse six, it tells us, it says, Delilah said to Samson, please tell me, Samson, where does your great strength come from? How could someone tie you up and make you helpless? Now that's not the most subtle approach by Delilah, that's to be sure. And surely, surely you would think that red flags are going up uh, and alarms are going off in Samson's mind, right? Surely he's going to shut this down, he's going to uh, shut her down relative, uh, rather quickly. And so what does Samson do? How does he react? How does Samson respond to this? Quite incredibly, he engages her in verse seven Samson told her, it says in verse seven, if they tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I will become weak and be like any other man. Samson, he doesn't shut the questioning down. He doesn't shut the relationship down. No, he lies to her. And she takes the lie, not knowing it's a lie, and passes that information along. Because we see in verse eight, says the Philistine leaders brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried and she tied him up with them. While the men in ambush were waiting in, the, in her room, she called out to him, Samson, the Philistines are here. But he snapped the bowstrings as a strand of yarn snaps when it touches fire and the secret of his strength remained unknown. And we see, see this very same sort of scene unfolding two more times in verses 10 to 14. We're not gonna read them, but on two more occasions, Delilah, 
tries to get information again out of Samson about his strength and the source of it. Each time, the tension builds a little bit more. She gets emotional. She says, you're mocking me. You're lying to me. You don't really love me. And what does Samson do? He calms her down. He says, it'll be okay. And then he, then he lies to her again. And the mystery of his strength remained unknown to them. And so what is Samson doing? Why is he playing this dangerous game? Is it pride? Is it arrogance? Is it denial? Is it all of the above? On one level, maybe he didn't think it really mattered. Samson thought that nothing and nobody can bring him down no matter what, not, not a lion, not a prostitute, not a thousand Philistine soldiers, not the, the gates of the city of Gaza, and surely not this woman named Delilah. And he may have even liked the danger in all this. He may have become hooked on the thrill, as hooked on the thrill of it all as he was on the, the women involved. It may have been a game, like a game to him, in fact. But Samson's pride, his pride in his own power, which in reality was not his power at all, his pride was blinding him. It was deceiving him into thinking that his choices and the ways that he was living his life would would never catch up to him. As we step back and think about this, the more God blessed Samson, giving him strength, giving him success, the more irresponsible Samson's behavior became because he became more and more convinced and more and more confident in his own invulnerability and his own invincibility too. Samson was taking for granted the gifts that God had given him and over time he was looking to himself as the source of his strength and his success rather than God. And that's one of the dangers of success, isn't it? Even for you and I today. Adversity and suffering can be very tough on us, spiritually speaking, but sometimes success and how we see that success can be even harder and even more dangerous and more deceptive as we start to believe that our success is all of all our own doing. This is why Tim Keller would say that pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It silently and slowly kills you without you even knowing it. And that's what it was doing to Samson. The Bible, in fact, warns us often about pride and about this sort of thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says uh, that whoever thinks that he stands, whoever thinks that he's got this, whoever thinks that he's in control, must be careful not to fall because you're not standing on your own. Your success and your blessings in your life are not, not your own. First Peter chapter five, verse five says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he might so that he may exalt you at the proper time. And we're going to see this very thing play out in uh, Samson's life, God eventually opposing the pride and the arrogance in Samson's heart and in his life and giving grace finally when Samson takes a humble and faithful posture toward him as we're going to see. But we're not there yet, so let's see what happens next as this game of uh, cat and mouse continues between Samson and Delilah. And as we see this self-deceiving man really becoming 
a self-destructing man in verse 15. Listen to what it says there. It says, how can you, this is Delilah speaking, how, how can you say I love you, she told him, when your heart is not with me? This is the third time that you have mocked me and not told me what makes your strength so great. Because she nagged him day after day and pleaded with him until she wore him out, he told her the whole truth and said to her, my hair has never been cut because I am a Nazarite to God from birth. If I am shaved, my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. Now you may remember that Samson was set apart by God from before his birth for a special purpose as, as a Nazarite. And God told Samson's parents before Samson was born that, that Samson was somehow going to begin to deliver the people of Israel and the nation of Israel from the grip of the Philistines. Up to this point, he hasn't really delivered anyone yet, but that, that was the promise. Now, every Nazarite took a vow with three things in it. First, not to come into contact with the dead, which Samson had already broke in chapter 14. Second, a Nazarite was not to drink alcohol, which it would also seem Samson had already broke in chapter 14, verse 10, when he threw a, a, a feast for a group of people. And that word feast quite literally means an event where drinking is taking place. It essentially means a drinking party. And the third vow was not to cut your hair, which up to this point was the only vow that Samson had not yet broke. And so what in the world is Samson doing, telling Delilah about being a Nazarite and telling her about his, his hair? This was, this was getting dangerously close, wasn't it, to the truth about Samson and his strength. So what is he thinking? Maybe he thought it didn't really matter. He had already broke the other two vows and that didn't affect his strength, right? Maybe he assumed that breaking the third vow wouldn't matter either. He had been doing things his own way for the most part of his, the better part of his life and up until now everything seemed just fine to him. Or maybe he didn't care. Maybe he actually wanted out of it all at this point and, and that often happens. Maybe he wanted out of this cycle of sin and women that had been consuming him for so long. And maybe, maybe Delilah's drama and emotions and nagging are what finally pushed him over the edge. I'm not sure what he was thinking by giving her this information. We're not told why he did it, but in any case, his uh, self-deception was about to pave the way to his own self-destruction. Like any cycle of sin or pattern of addiction, a point comes where things begin to pick up speed, where Sin uh, tightens its grip and eventually a misstep, a misstep will eventually be made. Eventually sin catches up to a person or we're about to see that happen with Samson. Sin and self-indulgence do not go unchecked forever. Galatians chapter six, verse seven says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. And Samson was about to reap what he had been sowing throughout his entire life, and we see it happening in verse 18. It says, when Delilah realized that he had told her the whole truth, she sent this message to the Philistine leaders. Come one more time, for he has told me the whole truth. The Philistine leaders came to her and brought the silver with them. 
Then she let him fall asleep on her lap and called a man to shave off the seven braids on his head. In this way, she made him helpless and his strength left him. Verse 20, then she cried, Samson, the Philistines are here. When he awoke from his sleep, he said, I will escape as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he was forced to grind grain in the prison. Verse 20 there is a very sad and very sobering verse for, for more than one reason. First, Samson thought that he would just do like he always did, right? He says, I will escape this, he says, just as I did before. It worked every other time. We see how far his self-deception has taken him. He believed that his strength and his success were simply his. They were uh, automatic, he believed, and that no matter what he did or how he lived, there would, uh, his strength would be there if and when he needed it. You see, Samson had reached a point where he had forgotten his own dependency on God for everything in his life, including and, and especially his, his strength. Up until now, Samson assumed always that his strength would save him from every situation, but this time, finally, he assumed wrongly. And verse 20 is a sad and sobering verse two when you see that the Lord had left Samson. The Lord left him and Samson says he didn't even know it. He did not know that the Lord had left him. Our God is a patient and long-suffering God, but his patience goes only so far before something is going to give. God can work in our lives for long stretches and long seasons, even when we are stumbling and faltering in sin, though, though as Samson finally discovered, we must never, we must not ever presume that he will, that he will continue that. If you think that past results when it comes to the sin in your life will predict future results when it comes to sin in your life, you're making a very foolish wager. Sin will catch up to you if you toy with it for long enough and it will eventually uh, trip you up and it may very well take you down, especially if you think that you may have found a way to manage it or, or to tame it like Samson had. The Lord left him, we're told. And look at what happened to Samson when he did. His eyes were couched out. He was bound in shackles. We see him imprisoned and enslaved and grinding grain. What we see really is Samson's own sin running its course in Samson's life and doing to him literally what it does to us spiritually and figuratively, blinding us, binding us, grinding us down into a faint semblance of what we're supposed to be. But with Yahweh, with our God, there is always hope. Verse 22 is a particularly hopeful verse. Look at it with me. It says, it says, but his hair began to grow back. 
This brief verse raises the reader's expectation that perhaps Samson's story is not yet over. But why would the Philistines have let his hair grow back anyways? Well, according to the Philistine worldview, they, they would have thought that Samson's strength was gone for good because his vow to his God had been broken and because uh, that's how things work with the gods they served. Everything was conditional. Everything was contingent. What they did not understand is that the Hebrew God, Yahweh, is the sovereign God and he is not in any way uh, constrained by or contingent upon his actions are not contingent upon the obedience of his people or anything else. What they did not realize is that Samson's strength did not come from the vows that he made, but from the God that he made them to. And the God that he made, him, made them to could do whatever he wanted and whenever he wanted. And we're going to see him doing just that as, as Samson's story moves uh, towards its climax in the final uh, verses of this chapter. Verse 23. Now the Philistine leaders gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to their God, Dagon. They rejoiced and said, our God has handed over our enemy Samson to us. When the people saw him, they praised their God and said, our God has handed over to us our enemy, referring to Samson, who destroyed our land, referring to the fires that he had started in chapter 15 that we talked about last week, and who multiplied our dead. So here we are at this very large festival and celebration in the temple of Dagon, the Philistine god of grain, and the, and the narrator, narrator tells us the two main reasons this festival was happening. One was to present a great sacrifice to their god Dagon, and the other was to rejoice and to praise their god Dagon for handing Samson over to them. Remember, in chapter 15, Samson torched much Philistine land and much Philistine uh, grain. And so now that Samson was in their possession and in their control, they believed that Dagon, their god of grain, was, re was responsible for, for Samson's capture and would be praised and should be praised and honored accordingly. You see, they saw their gods, the gods of their culture, on something of a level playing field with the gods of the other nations. And so they saw this particular battle as one between Dagon and Yahweh. And at this point, it seemed quite clear to all the people celebrating there that day that the God of Israel was no match at all for the God of, uh, for, the, for Dagon. But what they did not know is that it was Yahweh in his sovereignty who handed Samson over to them in the first place, not, not Dagon. And while it looked to them like Samson's story was finished, our God's story in and through Samson had something more to say about this. Now at these festivals, there would have been wine flowing freely. There would have been much debauchery that would ensue. And when the crowd began to get a bit lubricated and lively, they started calling for the trophy that Dagon had delivered into their hands. Listen to verse 25. It says, when they were in good spirits... They said, bring Samson here to entertain us. So they brought Samson from prison and he entertained them. They had him stand between the pillars. Samson said to the young man who was leading him by the hand, lead me where I can feel the pillars supporting the temple so I can lean against them. The temple was full of men and women. All the leaders of the Philistines were there and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof watching Samson entertain them. 
And that verb, entertain, in verses 25 and 27, it comes from a root word that means to laugh or uh, to mock or to deride. That's what they were doing to Samson and that's what they were doing to Samson's God and, and our God. They were, they were ridiculing him, saying, where is your God now? And so this is what Samson's life had come to. Instead of bringing glory to the God who had called him and was empowering him during his life, Samson was now giving the very enemy he was supposed to be defeating a platform to mock and disparage his God. But something fascinating is going to happen here. In the midst of all this, we see that something was going on on the inside of Samson. And this man who, was, who had uh, self-destructed seems to have been reflecting on his life and his future at some level too. This self-destructing man, it seems, had become a self-reflecting man. Verse 28, listen to this. It says, he called out to the Lord. Lord God, remember, please remember me. Strengthen me, God, just once more. So for only, for only the second time recorded in his life, Samson prays. And although Samson's prayer at one level might appear to be a last-ditch effort to, to secure divine assistance, we must, we must welcome the fact that he is finally acknowledging who Yahweh is and the role of Yahweh in his life. At last, he cries for help like Israel as a whole should have been doing for the past 20 years, but we're not. Somebody is finally turning to God in these chapters and crying out to him in this narrative, and it's Samson. The Philistines had called for Samson to entertain them, but as Samson calls upon Yahweh in this moment, his prayer is going to be that God and God's people would have the last laugh. In verse 28, Samson prays, God, remember me, remember me, he says. This is a humble request for attention. Samson finally sees quite clearly that he is indeed very forgettable apart from God and that God has every right to ignore him and his plea. Second, Samson prays, God, strengthen me one, one more time, just once more. And here at last, we see Samson giving an acknowledgement of his dependence on God's grace. For perhaps the first time in this entire narrative, Samson is exercising faith here and showing some semblance of, of repentance. There's a newfound humility here, a newfound awareness and recognition of God's uh, character and God's provision in his life. Look carefully at verse 28. It says he called out and he said, he said, Lord God, remember me. And then he says, God, strengthen me. In each of those three instances where it says Lord and then it says God and then it says God again, each one of those is a different Hebrew word. Those are three different Hebrew words, three different titles for God. The first one, Lord, is the word Adonai, which means sovereign one. Samson was finally acknowledging that God was sovereign over his life, over every aspect of his life up to this point, even as he stands there that day, blinded and shackled in Dagon's temple. The second occurrence of God there is the word Yahweh, and that's the personal name for God, the personal name 
of the very personal and relational and covenantal God of Israel who is, who is near, who is with his people and who is for his people. And the third occurrence of God there is Elohim. It means supreme and mighty one. And so this is how Samson approaches God this time around. This seems to be a very different Samson to the one who last time he prayed in verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 18, sounded quite entitled and who essentially demanded that God give him what he wanted without any real hint of, of humility or, or gratitude. And while the text is not explicit about this, there most definitely seems to have been some spark of repentance kindled uh, within Samson as Samson hit bottom in that Philistine prison and as Samson considered what it all meant and what he needed to, to do about it, and as Samson turned to God and repented and exercised faith, something, something happened inside of him. This self-indulgent man who had become a self-destructing man through it all was about to become a self-sacrificing man. He was about to flip the script on everything that was going down in the temple that day. Listen to how he does that in verse 29. Samson took hold of the two middle pillars supporting the temple and leaned against them, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all his might and the temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it and those he killed at his death were more than those he had killed in his life. Then his brothers and all his father's family came down, carried him back, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of his father Manoah. And so he judged Israel for 20 years. Let me die here with the Philistines, Samson said. So the most important moment in Samson's life was his death. The most faithful event of Samson's life was his death and, and the manner of it. And the most triumphant episode of his life was his death as he, as he showed us the shape of things to come by showing us that our God is able to defeat his enemies and to, and to deliver his people through the death of a single humble servant. One pastor and theologian named Ed Clowney in talking about the trajectory of this book of Judges, he said this, he says, God had shown in the book of Judges that he could deliver Israel with an army of willing volunteers. He had also shown that he could save his people against all odds with as few as 300 men, referring to the uh, story of Gideon, Gideon. But when the spirit of God came upon Samson, the Lord showed us that he had no need for 3,000 or even 300, he could deliver his people by one man. And in a number of interesting ways, Samson points us, doesn't he, to Jesus and gives us a picture of the type of death that Jesus would die for us. Both Samson and Jesus came into this world by way of a miraculous birth. Both were spirit-powered, empowered servants, one was sinful to be sure, but the other sinless. Both were betrayed by someone who acted as a friend. With Samson, it was Delilah. With Jesus, it was Judas. 
Both were seized and tortured and chained. Both were put on public display to be mocked and ridiculed. Both appeared to be completely struck down by their enemies, and yet both, in their death, crushed their enemies and delivered God's people. Both accomplished more in delivering God's people through their deaths than they did in their lives. The Philistines, they wanted to be entertained that day, and Samson, by the power of God, quite literally brought the house down Samson brought the house down, flipping the script on that celebration in much the same way that Jesus, by the power of God, flipped the script on Satan's celebration three days after he was crucified by getting up and walking away from the grave, by defeating death for all who would look to him, for all who would trust him and put their faith in him. And so have you done that this morning? Have you put your faith in Jesus? If you haven't, I wanna invite you to to do so today. Let's pray.